in honor of Dan Deckard, I'm not using that little podium thing they use there. I, I need it though. I'm tired. I want to lean on that thing. But could we pray again? Father, thank you. Thank you for the prayers of my sister and my brothers. Thank you for your word and this encouragement and correction that we glean from it. Lord, we thank you for your spirit who guides us into all truth. Lord, we praise you for the Son of God, our Savior, our godliness, our contentment, our great gain, our treasure. Father, may that be the case today. And we treasure you above and beyond all that there is. For you are all that we have. We praise you in Jesus' name. Well, if you have a Bible, you can join along in, in 1 Timothy chapter, or I'm sorry, 1 Timothy, yes, chapter 6, starting at verse 3. But um, before we do that, I just want to give you a little bit of background. Those of you who aren't familiar with the book of 1 Timothy, it was written to a guy named Timothy, strangely enough, by a guy named Paul, the apostle. They used to pal around together in Asia and, and uh, Macedonia and Asia Minor and all those places. Well, God's providence finds Timothy, now an elder at a local church, in Ephesus, all right? Well, what's Ephesus? That's a little city out there in the middle of that Bible time stuff. If you remember back in Acts chapter 19, they had a, quite a ruckus there. It seems that there were some getting rich off of religion. They were selling idols. In fact, the idol that they were particularly selling was the great god of Artemis. You should check that out. Quite a, quite a thing there. Anyway, so they're selling this... And, they're selling this idol, and they're making no small fortune. These guys are making a good living. Demetrius is the name of the dude in Acts chapter 19, making these idols, and all his cronies with them. Well, Paul comes to town, and he basically says, idols? What are you guys going to idols for? They're dead. They're the work of men's hands. You're out of your mind. So there's a big ruckus, because Demetrius and the boy, boys, they see their, their business you know, being threatened. So they come up and they say, you knock this off, Paul. And they get the local authorities and they bring them over and say, this guy is causing problems. Well, the local authority looks at him and says, this guy's done nothing wrong. Leave him alone. You guys are in threat of getting in trouble. Well, at that point, Paul leaves. And so just a few years later, a couple years later, Timothy comes on the scene and he's right back in that place, Ephesus. You know, where all the idols were. And that brings us to our teaching. Now, the book of Timothy is written by Paul to Timothy to particularly encourage him in the way that an elder, a pastor, should associate with his church, should run the affairs of his church. And he does quite a few things throughout the first book and the second book. We're concerned mainly with the first book today. The first chapter, we see Paul come in and he says, Timothy, there's some guys out there. They think themselves teachers of the law, but they're not. They're ignorant. They don't know. Watch out for them. He moves on from chapter 1 into chapter 2 and he says, you need to pray, Timothy. You need to pray. This is how you do it. It gives him a whole outline. Moves into chapter 3. He says, Timothy, if you're going to have deacons, here's the qualifications. Timothy, if you're going to have elders of a church, here's the qualifications. Moves into chapter 4. He again tells, Timothy, some are going to fall away from the faith. They're going to follow deceiving spirits and false doctrine to the detriment of their souls. He goes on in chapter 4 and he says, hey, but you, man of God, this is how you live. Chapter 5 comes and he says, this is how the church body is to relate to one another. Elders to older people, women to men, and so on. And he enters chapter 6 with a final thing about relationships within the church, within the body, when he says, slaves, 
in verse 1, submit to your masters. Even more so if they're believers because you are a benefit to a believer and they're supposed to be dearly beloved to you. That brings us to where we are, chapter 6, verse 3. He says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. So, Timothy's told by Paul, you're going to have people come in and they're going to have false teachings. And you're going to know because it doesn't match up with the the sound doctrine, the sound teaching of Jesus Christ. In fact, Timothy, they're puffed up. They have a big bubble about yay big around their head. And they think a lot about themselves and what they know and what they do. Don't listen to them, Timothy. They're ignorant men who know nothing. He goes on to say, after that verse, he has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth, who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now just a word here, because some folks think that sermons like this are are made to vilify the rich, glorify the poor. This is not the case. This isn't a sermon about being rich or poor. God makes people rich. God makes people poor. That's not the point. The point is using godliness as a means to gain. Now, the NIV says financial gain. But if you do a word search, you can look that word up. It just means gain. It can be gain of prestige, gain of honor, gain of finances, gain of material. It doesn't matter. It's gain. These guys are using godliness as a means for that. Well, you ask yourself the question, John, what's godliness? Godliness, simply put, is a respect, reverence, or devotion towards God in the way you think, the way you speak, and the actions you live out in your life. Now, one quick word before we get back into the godliness picture. Proverbs 22.2. It's going to be on the screen here for you in a moment. In case you're wondering, because we've got to pop a bubble of pride. Danny's been doing it all these past few weeks. We need to pop some bubbles. My own, your own. God knows. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord only makes them... Nah, the Lord makes all. Makes them all. You say, big deal, John. So what? God makes people. Some are rich, some are poor. It's not just that. You see, I've heard breathing. I've heard whispers from my own soul and from others who have said, John, I'm rich because I went to school and I worked hard. I'm rich and I have gained because I have planned and I have prepared and the perspiration from my brow, John, that's how I attain this. God had something to say about that in the book of Deuteronomy. It's going to be up on the screen here for you. Let that sink in. Get that through your mind. Because many have wandered from the faith in pursuit of gain that has nothing to do with godliness or Jesus Christ. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of looking at the guy on the street going, get a job, man. Work hard. Come on, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. 
I'm not denying that there should be hard work. There always should be hard work. Man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. I've been working hard. <laughs> Forgive me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you your ability to produce wealth. Wealth comes from the hand of the Lord. He bestows it on who He will. You're where you're at because of where God has put you. You have the income because God has blessed you. Be careful that you don't let your pride take you away, make you say, I've done this by the power and strength of my own hand. So this is not a sermon about being rich is bad and being poor is good. This instead is a sermon that deals specifically with the mindset of some who would say, I follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but for the sole benefit of personal gain. That being said, Paul moves along in verse 6, 1 Timothy 6, where he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, godliness again. You're going to hear this a few times throughout this sermon. Godliness is the thought, speech, and action of devotion, reverence, or respect of a person towards God. But he goes on, Paul says, godliness with contentment. Now, I did a little search on this word here. We could spend a lot of sermons just on that word. But for the sake of this sermon and for the sake of our time together, we're going to take what Paul says about contentment elsewhere to kind of build a structure for what it is here. You look up on the screen there, you're going to see a verse, Philippians 4, 12, and 13. If you have a Bible, you can read it there. He says, I have learned the secret of being content. That word, content, is the same content you got over here in Timothy. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Not some, not a few, any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do everything through Him, that Him is Jesus, who gives me strength. So let me paraphrase what Paul is saying about godliness with contentment. Paul is saying, but devotion, reverence or respect in thought, speech, and action with contentment, that is, trust in the all-sufficient strength of Jesus Christ regardless of where the providence of God has you in the provisions of your life, yeah, that's contentment. No longer is our life based upon how much we have or where we're going or how much we'll make. So Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. What is the great gain? Well, you just read it there. What's the secret of being content? Trusting in Jesus who gives you strength in any and every circumstance. We could basically end the sermon there, go out and party. Woohoo! But we won't, because there's more. Moving right along. In verse 7, he says, For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. Now, I'm real glad. I'm real glad that God in His providence gives us stuff. Because we're told that we don't bring anything into this world. When you enter the world, you bring nothing to the table. In fact, last time I checked when someone was born, they were kind of a drooling, leaking little ball of pudge, much like myself, but smaller. 
they were totally dependent upon someone to reach out to them and care for them. Likewise, he says, you'll take nothing out of this world. And so when you come into this world, it's not like you arrive going, I got my Cadillac. (laughs) And when you leave, well, what's the old saying? I think Chuck Swindoll is the one who's credited with it. There are no U-Hauls behind purses. (laughs) You can't take it with you. But there's some who live as though they're going to or they should. So we bring nothing into the world, we take nothing out of it. What you've got to ask yourself is in the next verse. This is the part where I want you to take a moment to think about your life because I don't know where you are. I haven't been given the gift of, of sight into someone's life where I know your secret sins and your struggles. And thank God, what a terrible gift that would be. It'd be like, ooh, <laughs> that's just looking in the mirror. In the next verse, verse 8, he says, But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. That's the part I want you to dwell on for a moment. Because this is the hardest part for us. Are we content with the sustenance, food, and the shelter, clothing, covering, literally, that God has provided us? Only you can answer that. I mean, that's where you've got to go before God in this sermon and say, Lord, Examine my heart. Show me. Have I been led astray in pursuit of of worldly gain at the expense of Christ? I pray that God in His grace reveals that to you. I know He has in my life. He moves on. In verse... I'm sorry. um, He moves on in verses 9 and 10. And this is the part where I found out He wasn't talking about rich people. Look what He says in verse 9. People who want to get rich. He doesn't say rich people who want to get rich. He just says people. I don't care if you're a millionaire or you're making minimum wage. You can have a desire to get rich that's unhealthy. I've noticed. I I grew up in a very poor area in Minnesota, very poor and all that stuff, until I went to the Philippines, until I went to Chuuk, until I went to Saipan, and I saw what real poor is. You see, brothers and sisters, Rich and poor alike have this in common. The Lord makes them. And rich and poor alike also have this in common. They're both easily led astray after selfish gain. Paul goes on in verse 9. He says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You've got to ask yourself, am I that person? Am I that person? Have I been led astray and wandered from the faith, pursued riches? I'm going to share with you a testimony from the Bible. It's a rich young man in Matthew 19. If you have your Bible, you can look it up. Otherwise, you just listen to me paraphrase Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. Every time I talk, well, I'm doing it again. It crushes me. Look at the futile result of this story for this rich young man. Jesus is teaching out there with the disciples, got a little crowd around him, and along comes this ruler. Rich ruler, we're told. 
he walks up and he says, Good teacher! Or, in another translation, What good thing must I do, teacher, to inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him and he says, Obey the commands. Player looks at Jesus and actually says, Which one? <laughs> like you can pick and choose. I'm surprised Jesus didn't say something, but he's God, so he didn't have to. He didn't have to think like John. Jesus goes right over that and says, Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your mother and father. Again, the rich guy looks at me and says, All these things I've done since I was young. Jesus said, Good. One thing you lack. One. Sell everything. Give it away. Follow me. He doesn't. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world stands before him and beckons him to himself, says, let that go, come with me, eternal life. Face to face with the Savior. Face to face with Jesus. Jesus says, let that go, come with me. If you don't know the outcome of this story, the man hangs his head, he's sad, and he walks away. The tragedy behind that is of eternal proportions. His soul is lost at that point. Unless, by God's grace, he turns around at some other point before his death. But you can see the strength of the riches in this man's life. He's, he can't follow Jesus. He literally cannot let go of the possessions and the riches of his life. The riches of eternal life. At that point, Jesus says something kind of interesting. He says to the, to the people that are left, because the, the rich young ruler's left now. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Now, just imagine a camel trying to get through a needle. They'd have to puree that sucker. Squirt him through there. And I just want to let you know, I know this is a graphic image, but whatever the camel was on this side, you ain't on that side. Pointless. Can't do it. You got a pile of pureed camel. Peter recognizes it immediately and he says, Lord, who then can be saved? That's an interesting thing there because remember, in the Old Testament, wealth, prosperity was a sign of what? God's blessing. Abraham was blessed of God. He had more sheep and cattle and servants and everything. And he was the father of our faith. Solomon, any questions? Dude was blessed. By the way, Solomon, at the end of his life, I don't know if you've ever read this in Ecclesiastes, you know what he says about riches? Wasn't worth it. <laughs> Wasn't worth it. Chasing after the wind. Wasn't worth it. Richest man in the world. I mean, he had a taste of wealth and riches that you and I will never see this side of heaven. And he said it wasn't worth it. Well, that being said, the rich young ruler leaves. Peter looks up at Jesus. He says, who then can be saved? And Jesus says those beautiful words with man. This is impossible with God. All possible. The context of that is salvation, not your blessings. The blessing is salvation. The blessing is a relationship with God. 
a letting go of all this world has to offer, and a clinging to Christ Himself. Well, Paul moves on, and he goes to verse 11, and he says, But you, man of God, but you, person of God, flee from all of this. All of what? From the pursuit of this this wealth, this gain by means of godliness that's resulting in all kinds of quarrels and envies and strife. You're being robbed of the truth. He says, flee that. But he doesn't just tell you to flee and run haphazard anywhere. He says, but you, man of God, flee. And what? (laughs) Pursue righteousness. Godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. I want to give you a final illustration of how it should be done when the riches of the world are offered to you. You know who's the good example, right? You know I ain't going to point out just any old person. I'm going to point out the person. All right, so we're going to, we're going to look at the chapter of uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Now this story, relating to our First Timothy passage, is basically this. Jesus is sitting on this, this mountain. Satan's there with him. He's going to tempt him. Listen to this temptation. It always boggled my mind why the devil tempted him with this. It says, Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world are shown before you, all the wealth, all the riches. If you will bow down and worship me, it'll all be yours. That's kind of like one of you going, hey, John, come on outside. We go stand up on the church. You point down at a beautiful 2002 Kia Rio. It's a chick magnet. You got that bad boy out there. You go, John, if you bow down and worship me, that Kia can be yours. Look at you like you're nuts. That's my Kia. What are you trying to get me to worship you for when it's my Kia to begin with? The temptation for Jesus was not to obtain all that stuff. He was going to obtain that. He knew that. Listen carefully. The temptation was to forego God's providence in his life where he had him. Circumvent the suffering. Circumvent all the stuff that led up to and through the cross didn't do it. He didn't hang his head sad, walk away. Instead, he said, get away from me, Satan. Worship the Lord your God. Love Him alone. Jesus is that example. We can't serve two masters, brothers and sisters. You can't serve money and God at the same time. You have to let go of one and grab on to the other. Reminded me of my daughter. She was walking. Or I'm sorry, my daughter, my, my, my nephew, Jaden. Jaden Thiemann. Jaden and I went fishing. First time ever. Good time. I'm not the most observant soul, and I don't keep an eye on everybody, but I was trying real hard. I'm watching Jaden. He's playing, having fun. In one hand, he has a box of uh, nerds. Nerds. His nerds, little candy thing. And he's walking. And he looks, and he sees these rocks going across this little stream, like two or three. I said, Jaden, do you want to walk across that? He says, yeah. He begins to walk across the, the rock. He steps, and all of a sudden, his nerds begin to spill. He takes his eyes off the rock, <laughs> looks to the nerd. You guessed it. Jaden experienced the cold, cool waters of Pewter Creek. <laughs> Jan was like, what are you doing? I said, he should have let go of the nerds point 
go of the nerds. <laughs> Let go of the nerds. Let go. All godliness and contentment is offered to you. This is where we end. Paul writes in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. He doesn't say, try to get a little bit more before that day. He says, fight the good fight of faith. What is our faith? Jesus Christ. Perfect life. Sinless death. Glorious resurrection. Good times return for all who believe. That's the faith. The question is, this godliness thing that we begin with. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In the third chapter, the book of Timothy, God writes this through the Apostle Paul. I read it to you earlier in our song time. He says, He appeared in a body. Right before that, beyond all question, this is certain. I am convinced. Another way of Paul saying that. Beyond all question. The mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in the body. Our godliness is not our righteous acts. It's not, it's not your respect and reverence of God, nor your devotion. Tell me, who here can say, I have respected and revered God and been devoted to Him more than Jesus Christ? Beyond all question, great is the mystery of godliness. He became flesh. So if Jesus Christ is our righteousness, and we know that because it goes on to say, was vindicated by the Spirit. Not little s, that's big s. Vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated means blameless, proved right. A number one spiffy, my translation. So not only does God come and become godliness for us, appearing in the flesh, but He is vindicated by the Spirit. Then we see he's, he's seen by the angels. The heavenlies recognize this. They go, whoa. Not only that, but he is, what's the next one? He's preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He's taken up in glory. You see, brothers and sisters, godliness is Jesus Christ come in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, preached in the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That's our godliness. Surprisingly, not surprisingly, contentment, we found out earlier, is Jesus Christ also. His strength, regardless of our provision. So I guess we're left with the question. How do we know we're seeking after Christ how do we know if we've deluded ourselves and gone after riches at the expense of our soul? That's a question that each one of you must bring before God and say, God, please show me if there's error in my way. It's a difficult tension because in one respect, we're told we need to work and make a living and not be a burden to other people. But in another respect, we're told God, don't give me too much that I forget about you. Or don't give me too little that I end up stealing from other people. That's our bent. We're going to go astray. We're either going, woohoo, more, or going, oh, no, less. 
How do we find that contentment with what God gave us? The answer is by trusting Jesus Christ for the strength to go through all, everything. Regardless of whether you are rich or poor, whether you are fed or hungry, whether you have a home or your home. I don't know how to do that for you. I don't even know how to do it for me. But I do know one who promises he does. Turn to him. Turn to him. Let go of the nerds. Let go of the riches. Turn to him. Then you will have eternal life. I'm going to take a few minutes to just sit and pray. Becca's going to come up and play the piano. As she does, go before you, Lord. If you'd like to kneel, you can. I know Danny kneels sometimes, but I'll be honest with you. I can get down on that one knee, but two knees, boy, that's hard on me. I have to lean on something, so I don't care if you kneel, you stand, you lay prostrate on the floor. Go before God and ask Him to reveal the motive of your heart. And this final thing before we pray. Whether you're rich or poor, clothe people, feed people, give drinks to people, bless people as you've been blessed.